Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy and joining me as usual is Liam. Liam, how's it going? Hot and bothered. Excellent. <laughs> uh, exciting Cinementalist news this week. We have brought a third member into the podcast. We have indeed. Uh, you're not going to hear much from him though, because sitting across from me right now is a baby bearded dragon that has been living with us for the past three days. Uh, his name's Floki. Floki. Uh, he's not going to say much. <laughs> I don't be expecting any insightful, witty critique. In fact, I'm pretty sure he hasn't seen a film. So, uh, any suggestions for Floki? I was thinking maybe starting him off with Jurassic Park and seeing how we possibly. Get well, I mean, yeah. if he's like, it sounds like he's just going to make fucking weird faces and build boats. So, uh, you know, might as well just leave him to that. Yeah, I mean, we got him and he got, got him into his tank. I mean, this tank is like a penthouse apartment. It's huge. This thing got him in, and the first thing he did was walk up to the nearest box that I'd made furniture out of. And headbutt it repeatedly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we were going to call him Ragnar, in uh, keeping with the Viking theme, but Floki seems more appropriate mm. with the eccentricity and occasional psychopathic violence. Absolutely right. He's going to fit in perfectly. <laughs> so, yes, please welcome Floki to the podcast this week. Uh, a little bit of film news to start off with. Uh, well, it's only in reference to <clears> something that I know we've mentioned it many times in this podcast, something that I'm really looking forward to. I know something you're really looking forward to. Tenet has been pushed back again. Really? To when? Yeah, so uh, it's now targeting an August release slot. Wow, Nolan must not be happy. Yeah, so as of right now, it was supposed to be 31st of July, which is already delayed, and they're now saying 12th August, but tentatively. Uh, they've got a little statement from Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers is committed to bringing Tenet to audiences and theatres on the big screen when exhibitors are ready and public health officials say it's time. Well, they say 31st, so okay. <laughs> Uh, in this moment, what we need to do is be flexible, and we're not treating this as a traditional movie release. We're choosing to open the movie midweek to allow audiences to discover the film in their own time. And we plan to play longer over an extended play period far beyond the norm to develop a very different yet successful release strategy. That sounds to me like corporate doublespeak. Yes, because it is. <laughs> so, yeah, but that is, is meaningless bollocks. <laughs> in, a sense, in a sense that <clears throat> surely it's finished. Well, yeah, I mean, and that would be the obvious reason for pushing it back. Would be there's a Chris wants to do a last minute edit or something. <clears throat> I think it's because it is it's going to be. I think it is gearing up to be the film of this year. So they're mm-hmm. expecting a phenomenal number of people to turn up. Mm-hmm. So I that would be my guess as to why they're making a con- this concession for it. Yeah, who knows? But I mean, it's. T- you could do that at any point, though. I mean, surely, you know, you must be ready, you know, even if Nolan isn't making a last-minute edit, you, as Odeon or View or whichever cinema outlet you are, mm-hmm. you surely have enough time to get that kind of shit ready by July 31st. So, you know, I don't, I just don't understand. It just sounds like laziness on their part. Um, <laughs> perhaps there's a strategy there. Perhaps something <laughs> is going catastrophically wrong behind the scenes. I do not know. But uh, yeah, that's, that seems really, seems like they're stalling for a deliberate reason that we can't know. Maybe it's terrible. <laughs> Maybe they want to push it back and go, oh, actually. Well, to, to, me, some other releases to me, it just sounds like they, they don't project to have their um, you know, abilities up and running in time, their ability to siphon people in and out in a safe manner and ensure that people actually have a safe, socially distanced cinema experience. Yeah. You know, maybe because they're anticipating it to be a very big release and they haven't actually primed themselves for that yet. 
which is quite poor form on their part. Because yeah, I mean, you have another Zoom meeting, guys. I mean, it's July 1st today. So the, the initial release date, I mean, it was initially July 17th of July, but as we've discussed previously, it's now the 31st of July. That's an entire month away. Mm-hmm. You're saying you can't get it sorted out in a fucking month. Yeah, there's some sort of weird corporate planning going no, on. I, 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 I no, can't quite decipher. Whatever. <laughs> uh, Floki is staring at me currently going, what the fuck are you doing talking to yourself? <laughs> he, he can't see Lee from his position, so... <laughs> he shouldn't be too surprised. Named after a mentalist, he should respect mentalists. Yeah, he's just staring at me going, what, the, what the hell is... Why are you so loud? <laughs> You're not normally this loud. But yes, anyway, things must continue. Uh, we have a big release that's come out recently. We're going to have to talk about it. Both me and Liam have seen it, although Liam's been uh, putting up his review, uh, which is, as I understand it, scorching. I haven't read it yet. He's literally rubbing his temples in front of me. Uh, yeah, we've both seen this one, but uh, Liam, I think you'll do it more justice than me, mate. Take it away. This is uh, on Netflix right now, and it's entitled Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. Yeah, Take we, it away, mate. We have to talk about this one, don't we? Mm-hmm. So, yes, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, stars Will Ferrell as Lars Eriksson, who is a ridiculous Icelandic gentleman and has been obsessed with winning the Eurovision Song Contest ever since him and his best friend, Sigrid, played by Rachel McAdams, danced like a pair of 20-10-year-olds in front of Abba's winning performance of Waterloo back in 1974. They've teamed up under the name of Fire Saga and they produced that kind of really horrible, campy, kitschy Eurodance trash that everyone who tunes into Eurovision each year has come to know and love. And they, it's essentially the consensus among all the talent hunters who they send their demo tapes out to that they are quite possibly the worst musical outfit in Iceland. And they... Going to I can't remember, it's like Songs Cafe Songs Cafepen or something. The you know, the pre-selection for Iceland's entry into the Eurovision Song Contest. And they do terribly there, but through a series of freak occurrences that I won't spoil here, just in case you want to watch it, as I do have that integrity, I'm sure you'll agree. They end up becoming the only available contestants that Iceland can enter into Eurovision Song Contests. And so they go to the host city of Edinburgh. And they are just beset by all kinds of problems. Oh, the the song that they wanted to do, it's got a new remix. Oh, the stage design is over-elaborate and complicated and haphazard. Oh, Dan Stevens has turned up as the Russian entry and he's really handsome and suave and he likes Rachel McAdams' character. And Oh, but she's got a little bit thing, you know, even though her and Will Ferrell are childhood friends, they got, there's a little bit something going on there. We don't, oh, is it going to materialise into something? You, and you know exactly where this is going. And to summarise this film, I know that Eurovision and things like Pop Idol and American Idol and Britain's Got Talent and whoever's got talent are wildly diverse to Eurovision, but I do remember a Simon Cowell compilation on YouTube where a contestant comes in and she does her bit and Simon Cowell just stand, sits there and goes, horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And that is, that is my, that was my immediate thoughts after finishing Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. This film is absolutely appalling. It makes Paul Feig and Judd Apatow films look like the fucking heyday of Mel Brooks. It was really painful to get through. I wished, and I write, I put it on the right, I had hoped this would be a satire. I would have loved someone to... It's do, attempting to be a point, I think. Well, it doesn't never, do a very good job, never ever, at yeah. all. 
I was hoping this, I mentioned in my write-up, stuff like, you know, music, a music-oriented satire, like Robert Altman's 1975 Nashville, you know, really dark, um, grimy stuff, whilst having a vein of black comedy running through it. They shoot horses, don't they? And incidentally, directed by Sidney Pollack, it's Sidney Pollack's birthday today, so happy birthday to one of the best directors of all time. That was more of a tragedy than a comedy, but something that satirised the human spectacle element of it. But no, it's the same old tired jokes. Oh, look, they're, oh, we, we're pretending to have Icelandic accents. Isn't that funny? Oh, ha, ha, ha. Oh, there's a slapstick because the stage is on. It's really terrible. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, there's a scene where Will Ferrell's having a go at some American tourists, but he's an American playing a Scandinavian, but they're American tourists, and he's pretending to be anti-American. Ha, 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 ha. I fucking hated it. I really, I really... It was one of those. It's one of those instances where I'm angry at, at had having to sit through it. It's so bad. It's also too long as well. Yeah, it's like two hours. Yeah, it's it's about two hours five minutes. You could have made. It's got an hour's worth of yeah. dodgy jokes in it. I make no secret in the fact that I do not like Eurovision at all. I even say in the opening paragraph of the review. I know that there's people they tune in and they enjoy they enjoy it in an ironic fashion because mm. it is that. I bad. am I am one of those people. That's fair enough. I am actually in that extra category where anytime anyone puts it on, I I just need to get away from it. I don't find it funny. It actually pisses me off. It just it grates on me. This is my personal preference, and this film has made me dislike Eurovision even more. I just it was you could have made a great fucking piss take out of it. Yeah. I mean. If because it's it was made um, with the cooperation of the uh, what is it, the European whoever fucking makes Eurovision yeah the EBU the European Council of Terrible Songwriters I, absolutely yeah. yeah you know they, it was made in conjunction with them and but I thought you know even though it's your thing it's your baby this annual competition you could have at least made something that had some something that had a bit of daring behind it that was something that had chutzpah behind it you know you could fucking yeah okay it's Eurovision and it's this silly spazzy campy annual singing rivalry but you could have at least why couldn't you have satirised it why couldn't you have had the writers of SNL and maybe a few original you know um, screenwriters whack up a screenplay where okay you know there's a little bit of real levity in there to kick in but you also have a dark vein running through it where you can actually properly satirise and take the piss out of the spectacle element. Yeah, that, that opportunity was wide open and they and they just completely shit the beds on that one. I mean, you touched on accents for a second. Can I tell you the one thing that did give me a hell of a lot of pleasure <clears throat> and got the biggest laughs out of me, it was the uh, notorious Pierce Brosnan. I'm glad you mentioned that. And it is actually something that I mentioned in the written review. Piers Brosnan's little interlude throughout the film did actually make me snort several times because he turns up and he's like, don't do this, you're stupid, With a, while frowning. And then he goes, wait, and those little bursts, and especially because there's something meta about the fact that it's Piers Brosnan doing it. Those little, those you know, those little uh, snippets there, they are, I did go, <laughs> it was, apart, that was it. That was literally it. Well, I, mean, I love Piers Brosnan. I think he's a genuinely good actor. And I also like that later in his life, he's taken these roles where he's very obviously taking the piss out of himself. Yeah. In Mamma Mia, he knows he can't sing, but yeah. he's like, fuck it, it'll be funny, I'll do it anyway. He's a great self-deprecator. Yeah, and his accent in this, I mean, he's doing the Swedish chef. Yeah. It's not Gurdy, 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 Gurdy. I've met people from Iceland that don't talk like that. <laughs> but I did appreciate the attempt, and I did appreciate the fact that he did it with a wry sort of 
and no, like he's got great at doing that sort of knowing look thing. Yeah, one of the reasons I liked him so much as Bond as well. To me personally, he's my favorite Bond. Maybe not the best Bond, but my favorite sure. personally. Right, because he's he's just so good at those little looks, almost with yeah. the camera. One of the things I've said about this film is that it has absolutely no timing. But to be more accurate, Piers Brosnan, in his very brief period on screen, mm. does actually have timing, which is why throughout the majority of the film, I was sat there in a very foul mood. But when Piers Brosnan actually appeared, I did go, huh, huh. Yeah. <laughs> which was a, which was a relief. <laughs> I, just, I love the way he commits to everything. He really yeah, has yeah. committed to this. He's going, right, I'm going to go for the full, I'm not just going to do an Icelandic accent, I'm going to take it to 11. I'm going to take it way beyond every... Just any... generic Scandinavian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> as much rhyming as I possibly yeah. can. <laughs> yeah, and, oh man, yeah, that actually had me in tears at points. And I think not in a way that the <laughs> film intended, perhaps in the way Pierce intended. Yeah. And I get the sense that he knew exactly what he was doing because he's a quality actor. But the rest of it, I mean, again, talking about accents, everybody's is just up and down and all over the fucking place, particularly Will Ferrell, who is, of course, the fucking lead. And it's kind of like, that well, horrible. You, you either commit like Pierce and go, well, I can't really do an Icelandic accent, but I'm going to play it for laughs. Or you do a mild version and hope that gets you through. He didn't even seem to find those marks. No. He seemed to, I mean, as far as I know, Will Ferrell can't do accents, and Eurovision has only confirmed that to me. And this, and another thing, because I know, I know that you uh, you don't particularly like Will Ferrell. I mentioned in, the, um, in examples such as in the first Anchorman in Old School in Zoolander, I did find Ferrell's performances pretty funny. But Anchorman, I thought, was funny. Because he has this thing, especially in Anchorman, but he, he's able to do this thing, and to a, a lot, some degree in Step Brothers, he has this thing where he's able to amble on with this bizarrely deadpan demeanour that is intermittently explosive. And I actually think it worked in a hilarious manner in those other things. In Eurovision, Will Ferrell doesn't hit the mark at any point. Mm. Like, literally no point whatsoever. It is just flat out awful. And Rachel McAdams, who I like Rachel McAdams well, I think she is a very good, she's a very talented performer. She cannot rescue this thing in any way whatsoever. There's no... I know there's plenty, you know, oh, it's the, the poignancy wrapped up within this goofy comedy. None of that was there. The fuck, the song alone, where they get all of the previous oh Eurovision God, contestants yeah. and winners, and they do that horrible, also-tuned spew of pop hits. Yeah, there was, a, there was a bizarre <clears throat> bit in the middle of the film where it attempts to do, I guess it's a nod to Eurovision fans, but it attempts to turn into a musical just for a brief interlude. Yeah, yeah. And so they're at a big party with all the Eurovision contestants. And they go, oh, we're going to have a song along. This will be fun. And so one person starts singing, and then another person starts singing, and they all start harmonising. It turns this big musical number going through this big stately home. <laughs> it is supposedly on top of, well, basically, I've been to Edinburgh a lot. I know Edinburgh extremely well. Yeah. There's a very large sort of uh, mountain precipice called Arthur's Seat. And uh, presumably this house must have been on top of that. Because that's the only place you're going to get a view of the entirety of Edinburgh. <laughs> so there's definitely fucking with the geography there, but fair enough. Okay, whatever. Who cares? But yeah, they suddenly launch into this musical number that is, and it's got um, ex Eurovision winners in it, and it's got some uh, modern pop stars in it, but not, no one particularly big, because if you are particularly big, why the fuck would you sign up to go and do this? It's got Conchita Verse, who most people know as the lady with the beard. Yep. And, and uh, the chicken woman as well, that she moves her head side to side. I think she is Icelandic from memory, actually. Uh, no, sorry, no, sorry. She's, uh, <clears throat> You're more informed than I am. Completely got this wrong. She's, uh, she's, I suddenly remember she's Israeli. And uh, she won, I believe, yeah, uh, two years back now. But her famous thing was she'd had this sort of half-catchy song, but she moves her head back and forward like a chicken 
pecking. So she turns up in it. And I'm sure there were some Eurovision people in there because I don't really follow it. I only watch it for pure taking the piss value, which, you know, I know it's not your thing, but I get a lot of value out of that. Oh, no, and and I, I don't begrudge, I literally begrudge nobody that. I just personally cannot stand Eurovision. The only gags in the film that actually work for me is occasionally they show a um, fictional Eurovision contestant like rehearsing or warming up or doing their thing. And they sort of nailed that, those individual little bits, because they make them faintly ridiculous in the same way all of Eurovision is faintly ridiculous. And they've got a few snorts out of me like, oh, yeah, that is, they, they've actually sort of hit that on the head. <clears throat> like, they've got the nail on that one. <clears throat> But yeah, it's it's I. Dan, I like Dan Stevens as well. I didn't. He he for me he brought absolutely nothing to it. No, and it got really bogged down in its own plot in the middle. Yeah. as well, where all of a sudden, so the um the two contestants, <laughs> the fire and ice team, fire saga team, uh, they have a falling out basically because they think one's sleeping with someone else and one's sleeping with someone else. And there's always a will-they-won't-they between them. <laughs> then they think, okay, well, there can't be a will-they-won't-they because now we're potentially sleeping with other people. And that whole will-they-won't-they, they, oh, now we've all split up, now we're all very sad thing. I swear, that takes up like half an hour of the film. Yeah, it does. And I lost all fucking it's interest. It's really fucking laborious. Entirely. <laughs> every little bit of interest I had, <clears throat> gone right there in that moment. It just sags. And you think the only way this <clears throat> sort of film is going to work is if it's just gag after gag after gag after gag. You've got to keep a bounce and a rhythm to this sort of thing. And then in the middle, it tries to be all emotional and deep, but with no, absolutely no um, concept of tone, how that ruins the tone of any sort of goodwill the audience has towards. Maybe a few of the gags have managed to somehow magically land. That's all torn apart at that point. That's the point where you can literally, you can go, you can get up and cook dinner. You're not going yeah. to fucking miss it's, anything. I've read some of the reviews. I mean, it, you know, I was expecting this to have um, an RT score, you know, of a maximum of about 20, but it's got about 60, 50, 60 something. I know, right? So there are at least a generous amount of people, you know, critics and just your average movie goer alike seem to really like this. And I just, I do, I don't understand that humour. I, I just don't understand it. I didn't like, nothing about that. With the aforementioned exception of Pierce Brosnan, literally not one iota of that was. I couldn't conceivably find it funny in any dimension. I just it was just a horrendous experience. All it made me think was that Pierce Brosnan is such a high caliber of actor that even if you give him a supposedly straight and serious role, in amongst everyone else being comedy actors, supposedly. Doing comedy scripts. He's funnier. He sometimes <laughs> somehow ends up being funnier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I thought was extremely impressive. I mean, I would yeah. say, I, if you want to see a funny Pierce Brosnan performance, this is one of his best. But I don't think it's meant to be funny. I think, again, I think he might have meant it to be funny and the filmmakers wrote it. I think if you read that script on a page, it's not funny <clears> because there's a whole dark thing about he's supposedly the, the um, Fire Saga team. They're not sure. There's a running gag about whether they might be brother and sister because supposedly Pierce Brosnan has fucked everyone in the town. And so there's a bit of a dark thing about, and why won't my dad support me in my dreams and all that sort of thing, because he's gruff. Icelandic fisherman thinks the whole thing's ridiculous. And so there's all that darkness there. And yet, uh, Pierce Brosnan does that a little bit. There's moments and looks and grimaces and things, and he sells that quite well. But then he goes back to his comedy accent. You think, uh, yeah, it sort of lifted the film. Yeah, I think he part, attempted to pick it up. Part, you know, I think look, part of the intended hook is that you're supposed to root for Lars in the face of his father's, you know, crushing disapproval. But uh, as a character, look, Lars was just excruciating. Yeah, you think he was, if that was my son, I'd be disappointed. Yeah, he was well. just a, not because he's trying to win Eurovision. 
No. But because he's very irritating. Yes, because he is a really aggravating man child. And I think, and I just thought to myself, like, you know, Piers Rosen as your dad, he, he, you know, he's intermittent in this film and he's far more interesting than you are. You know, so. you, you mentioned earlier my dislike of Will Ferrell. I wasn't going to go into it, but I will. Uh, <laughs> if not now, then when? Right. Uh, that's one of my problems with Will Ferrell is that he plays man children. And sometimes that works. Most of the time it doesn't. And he seems to have sort of stuck to a time. And the fact that he was a big part of the production of this and the writing, I believe he's actually credited as one of the writers on it. I believe he's one of the writers. Because he's a big yeah. Eurovision fan. He pushes through, wouldn't it be great to do a satire about Eurovision? Well, yeah, that's a good idea. Great concept. But he plays man children to the extent where it's like, I've seen this before. I thought what was really interesting, actually, I'm a big fan of the US office. And when uh, Steve Carell, as Michael Scott, leaves the office, Will Ferrell is the new interim manager that comes in. He's only in it for a few episodes. I guess they were sort of thinking that he's putting a established comedy actor with Saturday Night Live credentials like Steve Carroll in as a transition piece would work. I mean, great idea in concept. But the weird thing is, The Office is an ensemble piece. It's very, very funny. Uh, the characters and the actors playing those characters are very, very good at adapting around each other and milking as much comedy as they can out of every single scene. <laughs> Will Ferrell actually managed to kill The Office stone dead. It's, well, really? It's lucky he was only in it for a few episodes because those few episodes are bad. And he actually manages to sort of kill the cast, again, by playing a ridiculous man-child. And I'm sh- you know what? I don't want to have too much of a go at the guy because he has made me laugh. Like you said, Anchorman, everyone's always going to reference Anchorman and Will Ferrell. Anchorman's really funny. Mm. Uh, to this day, I think Anchorman's funny. The sequel was rubbish, but then uncomedy sequels always, with very few exceptions. Nine times out of ten, yeah. Yeah. But I don't get the Will Ferrell hype um, and I'd like to see if you're a comedian you have to be able to vary it up a bit it's okay to have a thing and a type <clears throat> well, Steve Carell's got a thing and a type he can play idiot man children but then he can also do Foxcatcher yeah and the great thing with his character of Michael Scott on The Office as well is yes there was a lot of the ridiculous man child um, completely <clears throat> out of place in the world doesn't understand how anything works there was a lot of that in Michael Scott but there was also uh, depth and emotional intelligence. There's points where he genuinely felt sorry for him. Mm. There are points where he actually had a, there was a lot more depth in that character than there initially seemed to be. And Steve Carell found it as the show went <laughs> on. And that was great. You got to see just what an accomplished. That's why it became such a huge stepping stone for him as an actor. After that, is that he proved a huge amount of range within a comedy role. But yeah. Someone, but you put someone like Will Ferrell in there, and all of a sudden <clears> it falls flat because Will Ferrell it seems to only have one note. He seems like a lovely dude, and I feel bad bashing him. Well, he, he, played, like a really he, nice play, he played a complete dub note all the way through in this. Yeah. I, I, I could not recommend it less. A lot of people really rate Step Brothers as well. wasn't a fan of Step Brothers. I, I did enjoy Step Brothers, I, I, I must admit. I enjoyed Step Brothers because that was, for me, that was Will Ferrell and John C. Riley doing... Um, I, th- I, I really enjoyed their ludicrous deadpan, especially Will Ferrell. There's you know, the bit where that guy, there's a bit where that stupid, um, you know, stock trader character keeps going on, pow, 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 and Will Ferrell's just sitting there, especially in the stuff. Why does he keep doing that? Sure. Is it? And yeah, that moments. I find, I see, I find those, those moments of delivery, I think that he nails that very nicely, but that was non-existent here. None of what makes Will Ferrell in any way funny whatsoever is, is present in Eurovision. And it was just, yeah, you probably tell that I was really frustrated having sat through this. Because I, I think that has come across. It is, yeah, because it's bad. It's bad. There's not, yeah, <laughs> there's no point where I go, oh, hmm, 
this looks like this. Uh, maybe we're coming to a point here where this might start picking up a bit. This is getting interesting. This is getting, no, nothing. Yeah. Nothing whatsoever. Don't watch it. If you watch it, I'm going to be very angry at you. No, but no, no, I'll, I'll give a proviso on that. Pierce Brosnan. Okay, yes. Yes. I, I, a- anytime Pierce Brosnan is not on screen, feel free to check your phone. Oh, absolutely. Go and make yes. yourself a snack, you know, get a beer out of the fridge or something. Just, you know, but it has a Pierce Brosnan performance. I think it's great. <clears> I quite like a cut. It's probably only about 15 minutes long of all if the that, Pierce Brosnan bits. Yeah. Well, before, you know, before you watch it, if you haven't seen it, before you watch it, go on Google. Try and find, I don't know, Eurovision Song Contest movie, Pierce Brosnan timestamps. Try and find if somebody's marked. Yeah, someone must have. Yeah, yeah. find if there are markers for his exact uh, appearances in the film. Watch the screen in those instances for whatever the duration it says it is. And then as soon as Pierce Brosnan goes away, do something else. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's good advice, actually. I think, I think that's fair enough. Okay, then, well, that brings us on to uh, your second review of the week. And I believe you've got not a docuseries. No, not a docuseries. We're actually deliberately yep. staying away from docuseries. Not a docuseries, a one-off documentary. This film. is a documentary. It doesn't count. Yeah. This is, I haven't seen this. This is uh, entitled, There Are No Fakes. No, nothing about this. Take well, it away. So as we've got, going back into that little pattern of talking about an absolutely appalling film, now we're getting on something that's fabulous. There Are No Fakes released last year, 2019. Kevin Hearn, who's a member of the Bare Naked Ladies, you know, Chickity China, the Chinese Chicken. He put pro- stick in your brain, stops ticking. I think that, that I think those are the lyrics. Yeah. yeah. Well, do you know, as far as we did, no, then let's not do it. <laughs> he purchases a painting by uh, a very famous indigenous Canadian artist by the name of Norval Morisot, aka Copper Thunderbird. Very iconic First Nations artist who he became very well known even to on an international level for being one of the first indigenous American artists whose stuff got, came out of the gift shop and into mainstream galleries to, you know, to be appreciated by the wider art community, not only in Canada, but also on an international level. I actually believe the BBC did some coverage of him in the 60s. So Kevin Ohm buys this uh, Morisot painting which, by the way, I don't suppose, are you familiar with Norval Morisot at all? No, Copper not Thunderbird? a name I'm familiar with. His paintings are, are predominantly centred around First Nations mythology. So you've got these incredible depictions of, uh, you know, supernatural creatures with a, you know, a, a prehistoric cave aesthetic and really vibrant colouring. Like they, they're really visually striking, like his works. There were, a few decades back, there was this enormous controversy around the notion that Someone or several people had manufactured thousands of forgeries of Morisot paintings. And Kevin Hearn, he's got a good idea that the painting that he purchased for $20,000 is an outright fake. So he takes the gallery who sold it to him to court. And there's this back and forth, and there's Kurt, there's Hearn and his legal team, and there's kind of like the sort of strange, kind of hippie ultra-liberal uh, fans of Morisot who are asserting that, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're committing fraud, you're exploiting the indigenous people, you're exploiting this First Nations man who was such had such a breakthrough status for his community and you're shamelessly utilising him to line your own pockets through dishonesty. And you've got uh, people who own Morisot collections that um, have, have taken the 
taken those who charge fakery, they've taken them to court. You know, well, you're saying I own fakes. And what you're basically doing is you're accusing me of being a participant in fraud. So I'm going to take you to court for libel. And, and it, this gets really, uh, this is like, this gets ugly and violent, these spats. Some of these people are really, really dysfunctional people and they put all of their energy into proving their assertions and it gets very, you know, there's physically and verbally abusive at points. There's Kevin Hearn sitting in the middle going like, I just wanted to buy a motherfucking painting. Like, and there's this, this community of lunatics centered around Northern Morrison. While all this is going on, Kevin Hearn and his lawyer, they actually start going back through the history of this painting, this alleged fake that he purchased, to find out exactly where it came from. Like, if it is an original Morrisot, it must be easy to establish that it's original Morrisot. And this just takes him on a journey that is just completely unpredictable. He goes well, back to the original galleries. They look up the uh, the provenances, like the will give you an idea of the original owners of this painting. Um, two of the names on the provenance list assert they have never ever seen this painting in their life, despite the fact that they're recorded as being owners of it prior to Kevin Hearn. Another name on there was someone who didn't even exist. <laughs> so they trace it back further and further, and they get to Thunder Bay, Ontario where there's a crime ring led by a man named Gary Lamont. And these people are essentially your first season of Breaking Bad. These are really horrible, nasty motherfuckers. You're talking about drug trafficking, sort of loan sharking, extreme violence, sexual exploitation. And they, they trace it to this Lamont crime ring and a few of his cohorts come forward and said, yeah, this, this guy spearheaded this enormous forgery operation, exploiting Morisot in particular. And so it, it goes from this little spat between people in a bit of an, you know, an ivory tower, the, the upper class Canadian art community into people on the fringes of society, you know, the, the wider degradation of in, indigenous people in general, um, really hardcore, nasty crime syndicates. It's just a, an amazing documentary, man. It is absolutely stunning. I, I was falling through a list of great documentaries to watch. I hadn't heard of this until a little while ago. But yeah, but I thought that sounds really interesting. I started on, this is absolutely phenomenal. The journey, it's completely unpredictable where it takes you one minute. Yeah, you are in, you know, you're just watching a bunch of art dealers and auctioneers having this really vociferous to and fro with one another. And then you're getting into, you know, the worst back alley crime in, you know, Canadian slums. And it's all centered around this figure of Norval Morrison, who passed away in 2007 at the age of 75. This iconic indigenous Canadian artist. But it's poignant. It's mad. It's exciting. It's just, it's really, really fabulous stuff. Oh, yeah. it's, it's so gripping. I could not recommend that highly enough. Joe, you know, when I've been going through stuff to watch for this podcast, I've been deliberately skipping <clears throat> over documentaries simply because we've covered so many of them. But then part of me thinks that you know, we've covered it before, but there's just so many <clears throat> good ones out there at the moment. Yes. We're living in a heyday, a golden age yeah. of documentary cinema. It's so, yeah, there's, and, it, you know, I, I think. Yeah, we, we cover basically what we try and do a, a balance between 
things that we know and love that perhaps not, not enough people have seen. Absolutely. Yeah. And things that are current and present and what our opinions on those. And this, and this is... So many of them are documentary. And this is... and But I, re- I wanted to sort of um, emphatically recommend this to people because it's just so fast... Because it's so fascinating because you come across people who they demonstrate, well, this is... I think that this, this one's a fake because Morriso didn't use these colours. Mm. He didn't use these designs. It actually goes into what makes a Morriso painting... And there's one of his um, acolytes is this crazy Canadian hippie guy, a guy named Star Dreamer, who's asserting that, oh, these people are faking Morriso. They're buying and selling Morriso forgeries and they're ruining the man's legacy. And then the people who are in the divergent camp to him are these kind of Canadian roughnecks. These are people outside of the crime ring I've I mentioned before. They're nothing even to do with it. They're just people who bought some Morriso painting at an auctions. But they're like... Oh no, this guy's a he's a freak, he's full of shit, you know. It's and you've got all this spat going on and before it goes into the really ugly territory. And the way it's and that is just completely and utterly off the charts. Mm. Just the way the documentary weaves around all of it and brings it all together is such an amazing journey. It's, it's the, if you have the even the most cursory interest in art, you will really like this documentary. If you like true crime, you will really like this documentary. If you like um, a really wonderful vein of ambiguity running through something that makes it the most perfect kind of puzzle, it is. You will love this documentary. And all, while all this is going on, Kevin Hearn, being naked ladies, man, is literally just sitting there all the time going, I just wanted to buy a fucking painting, man. Like, what, <laughs> what is... <clears throat> What is all this going on? No, it is fabulous. Please, please watch it. Yeah, no, I will give that a go. I shall. Okay, that brings me on to TV of the week then. And uh, I'm having a bit of catch-up week at the moment. I'm halfway through Picard. Oh, yeah. Uh, That'll be my review next week. Uh, A little spoiler for my review next week. I'm a huge TNG fan. This isn't TNG, but I'm quite enjoying it anyway. I'm not quite sold on it yet, but it, it's going in places that I want. Rather encouraging so far. Yeah, oh, speaking of which, actually, I did a review of C last week. And yeah. a couple of people messaged me going, uh, I thought that review was really interesting because they've seen bad reviews for C. And I thought, okay, because I don't normally look up other people's reviews. I normally sort of look at the headlines of other reviews, just get an idea as to where I'm going in. Do the critics like it? Do they not? I saw some favourable ones for C, and then I started Googling around. Lots of really bad reviews for C. Yeah, and then I thought that's really, really weird. And then the Guardian review for it, which is very positive, mentioned that the reviews sent out to critics were the first three episodes. And I'm sorry, I know we're, that's bullshit. I know we're a, a, poke, a pokey little podcast floating on the ether of the internet, but I, in terms of our values of professionalism towards this, I would never ever review an eight part series uh, three episodes in. I wouldn't review a film if I hadn't watched all of it. Yeah. You don't do that. Yeah. You, 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 you never do that. So there's, there's some stuff, I think the earliest I've reviewed something is like halfway through or something like that. And even then I felt a bit ropey about it because you never know. Things might take an upward or a downward turn, you know, a, a part way through it. Um, yeah. So if, all I can say to those reviewers is obviously I'm fine with going against Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> but these are. It's not fair. These are professional guys getting paid. Like really serious salaries, and I suppose it's Disney's fault because um, I'm sorry, not Disney, Apple TV's. I suppose it's Apple TV's fault for showing three episodes and going, "Well, we'll send those out to the critics and they can review those." That's a really stupid idea. That's a really fucking stupid idea. Like review the whole fucking thing. 
what I'm really anxious to review Snowpiercer. But they're mm. they're pushing out because I read the book as well. But they're pushing out those episodes weekly, which annoys me by itself. But okay, fine. And so there's only um, I think it's supposed to be a ten episode season. And there's only six episodes released so far, so I don't feel comfortable reviewing it yet. So yeah, uh, well, fuck the professional critics as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I've watched the whole thing and I thought it was fucking good. So there you go. Wankers, Sho- shove that up your absolute ass. wankers. <laughs> yeah. you're a disgrace. You shouldn't call yourself critics. I wasn't going to do that, but anyway, <clears throat> ran over. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did, man. Yeah, how can you negatively we, review something three episodes in? It's fucking ridiculous. We need to take these charlatans down. Yeah, well, that's hopefully why we're better than the uh, the professional reviewers. I like to think we are. Well, I I like to be a, a relatively modest individual, but I think we have more integrity on that stroke. Oh, uh, hopefully so. Definitely more integrity <laughs> at the very least. And more swearing. Fuck piss shit cunt. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, a bit of a catch-up week for me. So I thought I'd do a couple of little pieces on things that they're sort of things in my periphery that I watch occasionally as sort of palate cleansers almost. Mm. So here's a good one of these for a start. Oh my God. So I was um, flicking through Netflix the other night looking for just anything interesting at all. And I suddenly saw Ancient Aliens is up on Netflix. I love that show. Right. (laughs) So you know where I'm coming from on this. (laughs) The man with the hair. Yeah, 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 exactly. So... Ancient Aliens has been running on the History Channel for a long time. And I suddenly saw it on Netflix and I thought, what the fuck? What is this doing here? It actually was like sort of the ninth most watched thing in the UK. Mm, yeah. So it's obviously uh, getting an audience. It's obviously working for them. <laughs> Ancient Aliens is supposedly a documentary series. Well, Wikipedia's got it down as pseudoscience, pseudo-history, and pseudo-archaeology. <laughs> the trifecta of bullshit. Right? <laughs> yep, Absolutely. The premise of this show is this. You, they get a bunch of talking heads together and they discuss the idea that perhaps aliens may have visited Earth uh, during ancient times and perhaps had an influence on Earth and that's why we've been able to progress as a species more than any other species on the planet and get <clears> to the <throat> elevated level that we now sit at. Okay, so, that's, I mean, that's an interesting premise. What you end up with is having... A, the show sort of draws you in with a reasonable enough speculative idea so they, they point out something like um, there's an area in the Mexican desert called the Silent Zone, mm. where it's notorious for if uh, you've got radio equipment or uh, if you're flying through with a plane or whatever, your radios will start malfunctioning, your compass will start malfunctioning. They've had planes go down, they've had people disappear in that area. And you know, whether that might be some evidence of um, funny business, basically, something going on in the background. You think, well, that is very interesting. Um, you know, maybe there is actually something to it. Please now show me some evidence. And they don't. What you, what you get is all these talking heads popping up. But And every time their name pops up underneath with their profession, every single one of them is an author. Yeah. Science fiction authors, primarily. This is basically a coup. This, this, this entire thing is a rip. It's authors that are trying to get a quick extra buck. And they've written a few sci-fi books. Would you come and speculate on the idea that <coughs> aliens turned up at some point? Would you come and, you know, we'll pay you like, I don't know, 500 quid for the day. And they go, sure, fuck, easy money, right? So you get these, particularly, I mean, this is the one that... If well, you, you read Chariot of the Gods. Yes. In fact, the author of that, I forget his name now, actually turns up on ancient aliens. I mean, even though it's not got any, you know, scientific veracity, I do think it's a great book. It's a great read, at least. Yeah, you know. What this thing has is nice ideas. We think that's very interesting. That's an interesting idea to think about. Yeah, maybe maybe 
the ancient aliens did turn up. Maybe there's, okay, so you know, show me something towards it. And the show just makes, it starts out with a reasonable enough premise. And you think, oh, there might be some merit to that. And then it makes, as conspiracy theorists always do, makes these huge <clears throat> leaps in logic. There was a guy going through the Bermuda Triangle in his, um, his small, like, Cessna plane. And he ended up being caught in a storm. Mm. And the storm started swirling around him like a cyclone. So you got this guy on there saying, yeah, I was flying through the Bermuda Triangle. And I ended up flying through this sort of cyclone-shaped storm and it was really freaky. And so the, the next leap is, was this a wormhole <laughs> that allowed people to travel with... Wormholes are theoretically... Uh, part of theoretical physics that um, say that potentially there could be a, essentially a rip in space-time <clears throat> that can move you quickly from one point to another. So you appear to move faster than the speed of light, etc. The theory of wormholes is absolutely true. The theory of wormholes, stressing the word theory, it's those leaps in fucking logic that just make it... And look, I knew what this show was to begin with because it's a show that's been on the History Channel for years. And it's the kind of thing... I used to work in a bar. And when I was locking up of an evening and me and another member of staff were having our last pints and sticking the, you know, stuck in the furniture of the bar, this is the sort of thing we'd stick on to laugh at in the background Absolutely, and just take yeah. the piss out of relentlessly. That's the only value of Ancient Aliens, right? I talked about Talking Heads. There's one I definitely have to mention. This is uh, Giorgio A. Sukalis, sorry. Even if you haven't watched Ancient Aliens, you probably know who this guy is because he turns up in memes a lot. And his entire gimmick is that basically he makes his hair stand up on end. <laughs> and you can tell what era of Giorgio you're going to by how ridiculous his hair is. And he's got madder and madder. His hair's got bigger. I'm doing it with my hair at the moment. You can't see. But yeah. It's true. It's true. So let me just talk about this. this he's also one of the producers of this show. Um, and he's uh, got a career as a television presenter. So his Wikipedia's got him as a writer, a UFO, ufologist, a television presenter, and a producer. Um, he's a proponent of this uh, pseudo-archaeological theory that ancient alien a- astronauts interacted with ancient humans. Sorry for my stumbling. There's a lot of big words in that sentence. Uh, he's known for his appearances in the television series Ancient Aliens and Bizarre Haircuts. His Wikipedia's actually got that. Um, <laughs> let's talk about this guy for a minute because he crops up a lot. And he crops up with these huge outlandish theories and he's normally one of the people where when they want to take what is an interesting concept and make a huge leap in logic to the point where it becomes absolutely fucking ridiculous. This is the guy that turns up and says it, right? That's his whole fucking role on the show. Let me talk about this guy for a minute. He is um, of Greek-Austrian heritage. He is a 1998 graduate of Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York, with a bachelor's degree in astrophysics? No, communications. Uh, For several years, he worked as a bodybuilding promoter and a volunteer in IFBB-sanctioned bodybuilding contests, including Mr. Olympia. He produced and directed the annual IFBB San Francisco Pro Grand Prix from 2001 till 2005. After that, he appeared on Ancient Aliens. <laughs> and he's sitting there as this fucking expert. He's, he's basically... Yeah. Right. You know what aggravates me about it, though? I'm sort of half recommending it because it's so much fun to poke fun at. Absolutely, yeah. And the CGI alone is worth watching because that CGI wouldn't have passed muster in 1992, <laughs> never mind in uh, 2000 and whatever these episodes are made in. I believe it started in 2010. This is a, a full-time <clears> season. <throat> That's worth watching. I wouldn't watch too much. After two episodes, you just get sick of being bullshitted to, yeah. basically. It's a nice one to sort of duck in and duck out. Let's laugh at this for a minute. But it, there's a deeper thing going on here, which is what I really want to get onto, and the thing that annoys me more deeply about it as a program. It's this sort of woolly thinking and this sort of leaps in logic that leads to things like, I don't know, Trump being elected. Do you know what I mean? It's like a... a 
a rejection of scientific values and that whole sort of cherry picking things because of the truth you want to believe. And Ancient Aliens is a really good example of how <clears throat> a, a, what I want to say is a regular minded person, a reasonable, rational person will look at that and go, well, hang on a minute. That's a big fucking leap you just made there. But there are a lot of people out there watching this stuff, just sort of chowing down on it, just sort of t- spoon feeding it into their mouths. And I think that's actually a genuine problem within our modern times. That sort of woolly thinking shouldn't be encouraged. I, 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 it's a guilty pleasure, this one. I, no, I absolutely 100% concur with you. And I mean, I am um, an avowed empiricist and I do enjoy it for comedic purposes, essentially. Mm. But uh, it was nice to summarize because I remember when it first aired, I remember watching a few episodes with my dad. It was my dad who said to me, he goes, you ever read um, Eric Von Danken's book, Chariot of the Gods? And at that point, I hadn't. And he said, it's, you know, it's totally outlandish, but it's a really, really, it's an intriguing hypothesis, the way it's written. It does, you know, it's a good, it's something that, um, it, it's something that kickstarts the imagination. Yeah. And I said, uh, and he was like, you know, he was like, you should give it a read, mate. It's good. Probably got a copy in the loft somewhere. I said, like, oh, so what's Eric Von Danken about then? And my dad was like, oh, he's mad. <laughs> he's like, oh, he's barking mad. He was just like, but he's written a very entertaining book. It like. really reminds me of that old joke that um, keeping an open mind is a good thing, but if your mind's too open, your brain will fall out. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, I, I, speculation on that sort of thing, as you said, they're very interesting concepts to think about. It's when the show starts presenting really speculative things as evidence that I really start to fall out with it. And there's, it leads you in in such an insidious sort of way. It starts off with these premises. There's an episode where there are, um, there's this, uh, I think it's an area of Peru, where there are these um, huge rock formations. And they're going around and saying that there's you know, this a running theory that an ancient civilization lived here. And they carved these rocks into statues, but over the course of erosion, they've lost sort of some of the detail. And they're showing you shots of all this, and you're looking at these shots and going, well, yeah, okay, I can sort of see that. That one <laughs> looks like a man, that one looks like a horse. That seems like a, a reasonable hypothesis. Mm. No, then it makes the immediate leap to, did ancient aliens come down and show these people things that they then made into statues that have then been eroded by... Where did that leap come from? <laughs> aliens never turned up in any of that. What, I don't mind speculation, but when you're being absolutely fucking ridiculous and you're telling me... You're telling it to my face like it's fucking scientific evidence, then I start to have a problem. Like I said, it's pure guilty pleasure, this thing. And the cast of characters that turn up with their ridiculous haircuts, ridiculous ways of speaking, there's a lot it's of not, comedy value there. You mentioned that. You remind, do you know what's immediately popped in my head? It's the, the South Park episode where they uh, they come across the Tooth Fairy mob ring. Yeah. And there's the guy at this seminar who comes forward and he puts forward his hypothesis, which turns out to be accurate, that a beep, there's essentially a tooth, you know, a tooth extraction, a tooth fairy racketeer operation. And they're like, oh, God, where is this Montreal? Anyway, the real copy behind this is the half crab, half squirrel. It's, just like, that's, it's the same. It's logically identical, yeah, isn't it? It's it just is. like, what are you doing? How have you arrived at this conclusion? A lot, a lot of these people, you think, you bastards, you've made so much money out of leading people on. Yeah, I'd yeah. like to see a program. What really is funny as well is very occasionally an actual scientist turns up. So like the, um, the uh, dead zone in the Mexican desert, they actually have an actual science. The issue is a professor at MIT. And she goes, well, it is true that the magnetic field um, over the entirety of the Earth does fluctuate in different areas. 
And then we cut away. (laughs) There's your little bit of science in the middle. But yeah, that's true. That doesn't necessarily mean these are markers for alien landing pads, though. There is your problem. There's a bit as well where they they show a fucking, like, it's a carving in the rock. And it's supposed to be an ancient gateway that could have been an interdimensional portal. I'm telling you what that is. I can take one look at that. And I don't have any fucking evidence, but I can speculate better than these guys. I looked at it and thought, well, that's just someone's unfinished house. It's what that fucking... Basically, they started making a house and then for whatever reason abandoned it. You know, famine or something like that, right? Again, the total guilty pleasure. Don't watch too much of it. Your fucking brain will fall out. But as an occasional treat, it's sort of like gummy bears. Yes. They're going to do you no good, but as an occasional treat, they're sort of good for your soul. You know, at least you're not stupid. <laughs> this sounds really, really bad to say, but fuck it. At least you can watch it and go, at least I'm not as stupid as those guys, right? I'm, t- I'm totally fine with speculation. I'm totally fine with outlandish theories and that kind of stuff. But do not do me the disservice. Do not insult mine and the rest of the viewing public's intelligence by presenting them as if they are fact. You say as stupid as those guys, I, w- I would probably urge towards more as cynically exploitative as those guys. Again, yeah. Or maybe even as deranged as those guys to give them a slither of the benefit of a doubt. There's, <laughs> a, there's a slight malevolence hiding underneath yeah. it. Yeah, as you say, like, it comes uncomfortable for, at points. For purposes of hilarity, it's gold. Yeah. You know, but yeah. I please don't, please don't take this as mean that, you know, without, yeah, I, I am fully aware of the, power of the human mind and that we can extrapolate outwards and that we can make leaps in logic that later turn out to be true and you know the ufos and all that i'm listening i'm very interested to hear about whatever those stories are mm. but don't present them to me as if they're fucking absolute fact no 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 yeah. and while i'm here as well just another little catch-up thing uh drunk history ah yes now, I'm talking about specifically about the American drunk history there. I watched the British drunk history, and for me, it didn't work the same. Uh, for those that aren't aware of what drunk history is, this program's been running for quite some time now, uh, hosted, and I believe he's one of the creators, Derek Waters. Uh, he basically goes to people's houses uh, that are either historians or have a very strong interest in history. He gets them really wasted. They start telling a particular historical story, but obviously because they're drunk, they're sort of fucking things up all over the place. It cuts back and forth to um, actors acting out these scenarios, but using the dialogue of the drunk person. Mm. Super clever concept. Mm. Really, really like the idea. Oh, it's great stuff. Um, I've been watching it for quite some time. I haven't watched it in a while. Um, So I think I ended up uh, watching the first three seasons of it, really enjoying it and then forgetting about it for a while. There's new stuff out and I've been catching up with it. Uh, It's lost its way a little bit. And the, the little interludes using actors that a lot of them are, oh, I know his face, but I don't know his name. Those are still fine. Those are still working good. I think the problem with some of the new stuff is that they're actually focusing way more on the drunkness of the drunk person than the interesting story they're trying to tell. Because what I really like about it is, yeah, you're getting told it by a drunk person who's forgetting bits and slurring and going, oh, shit, no, wait, hang on a minute. I forgot. It's a bit like this podcast. (laughs) Um, That's all fine, well, and good. But at the same time, it's reached a point where now the focus seems to be getting this person so absolutely fucking hammered that the reason for watching the show is to watch a really, really hammered person. And actually, I thought they had a really nice balance between you learning something about a little segment of history you wouldn't have known otherwise and the entertainment value of someone being drunk and funny. The modern ones that I've seen, I've kind of fallen out with it because it's just about the person being drunk and ridiculous and silly. And that's... It's one of those things, isn't it? If you're not as drunk as a drunk person, drunk people are really annoying. Uh, well, yeah, they are. Because the their intoxication is the catalyst for the comedy on the show in an abstract way. Mm. It makes the historical retelling hilarious. Yeah. 
that was the that was the, the purpose inaugural the idea behind drunk history. I mean, what is the purpose is to do a funny light entertainment <laughs> program, which people are going to watch because it's funny and entertaining. But you're also going to learn some really cool bits of history that you wouldn't otherwise. Yes. So it's an educational program in some sense. It is, but uh, I mean, because they they do tend to fuck it up quite a lot, don't they? Yeah, because and that's that is part of the hilarity. I've noticed a distinct decline in the most recent stuff where they're focusing on the drunk person being drunk and silly rather than the interesting part of the story. They had a nice balance, and I've just noticed it. It's definitely declining in quality for me. That's quite a shame. Which is a shame. I don't know whether that's audience feedback or whether that's a a network decision. They've gone, oh, it's the drunk people that people really like. No, it's drunk people telling you interesting things. Just go down a bar, then. Yeah. I was going to just go go and sit in a bar if that's what you want. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, again, a proviso on this one. Uh, the American version of Drunk History is really, really good. But by the time, if you haven't watched it before, by all means, go for it. You'll learn a lot of nice little facets of, uh, the American version is, of course, focused on American history. But you'll learn some really interesting, funny things there. And it's a funny show. And you'll get the funny bits of them fucking up in hilarious ways. And the actors turning to the camera going, what did I just say? And all that sort of stuff. That works really nicely. But I have to admit, the new season is, yeah, it's, it's it's floundering a little bit. That's quite disheartening to hear. Yeah. Because I like that show. Mm. So if any of you guys are listening, just focus on the history, man. That's the best fun bit. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that brings me on to uh, my trivia for this week. Uh, we're going to start out with a little bit of UFO facts, uh, <laughs> which is sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? Uh, in the sense that, well, no, I mean, UFOs, <clears throat> I've seen a UFO. In terms of like an unidentified flying object that behaved weirdly, I've seen that. The yeah, people, again, the leap is extraterrestrial travellers. <clears throat> that's the bit we don't have. People, people seem to have a whole problem with uh, sort of terminology and etymology and taking <laughs> actually dissecting terms because unidentified flying objects. I mean, if I if I throw something into the air and, uh, and I don't know, what and, it is. and you look at it and go, <laughs> "What the fuck is that?" In that specific context, it's an unidentified flying object because it's an object flying through the fucking air and you don't know what it is. That's all a UFO is. I remember this very often. People have to be told this. Like, I'll, I'll tell you my <clears throat> story, actually. This is what happened to me. I was standing with a friend of mine and the International Space Station was supposed to be passing over very low so you could see it. So we're basically standing out there staring up at the night sky. And But I had an app on my phone that was tracking it. And it was still about 15 minutes away, but that's fine. We were standing up, staring at the stars, chatting about bollocks, as you do. And we noticed a moving white dot um, going across the skyline. We were looking at it going, oh, that must be a satellite. You know, we were sort of staring up at it going, oh, that's interesting. It's got to be a satellite orbiting the Earth. And then as we were looking at it, it stopped. And we sort of looked at each other. That's, is that just me? It's actually stopped where it is. And then it shot off at a right angle from its previous trajectory. And we both looked at each other. And when no one is ever going to believe this. <laughs> do I think that was... Uh, You've told me this story before. Yeah. So. I, do we think that was Little Men from Mars? No. Uh, it could be. Entirely could. If we were watching Ancient Aliens, it was. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> unidentified flying phenomena, yes, very much do exist. And, you know, do I believe in aliens? Uh, I believe in the statistical probability in the sense that there are, the universe is seemingly infinite. There are billions of potential planets out there. The idea that we are the only planet with life on it, um, statistically, is wrong. Statistically, we, it would be unbelievably weird for us to be the only planet. Well, isn't it, I mean, like, I mean, you, you, you are. I mean, would you classify yourself as an empiricist as well? Yeah, 
yeah. if you're an empiricist, you don't say that something is without equivocation not true unless it has been proven. Sure. So, and I think any. I'd love there to be aliens. I want there to be aliens. That would be amazing if they were. Are they coming to visit us in little spaceships? Though I'm dubious. I haven't seen them do so, (laughs) and and I've yet to be convinced of anyone who has purported to see them to actually satisfy scientific scrutiny. Yeah. I am not saying you are a liar. I'm saying show me the evidence. Yeah. I'd plead. The thing is, I'm not going. Going, sh- I, I want you to show me the evidence. Yeah. I, I genuinely I want you to show So we're going to start out with some uh, UFO facts anyway. The first well-known UFO sighting occurred in 1947 when businessman Kenneth Arnold claimed to see a group of nine high-speed objects near Mount Rainier in Washington while flying his small plane. Arnold estimated the speed of the crescent-shaped objects as several thousand miles mm-hmm. per hour and said they moved like saucers skipping on water. In the newspaper report that followed, it was mistakenly stated that the objects were saucer-shaped, hence the term flying saucer. Oh, goddamn. That's the origin of the term. You said, sorry, in 1947, where was the location, sorry? Uh, Washington. Washington? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he said they were like saucers skipping on the water, and the newspaper said they were saucer-shaped. So there's, there's was, your... not, was 1947 the same year as Roswell? Oh, right about, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. Uh, we've had, we have actually briefly referenced this on the podcast before. Uh, on October 19, the Pan-STARRS-1 telescope in Hawaii spotted something strange zooming through our solar system. It turned out to be a visitor from beyond our solar system, <coughs> and it's unlike anything astronomers have observed before. It's the first observed object from outside our solar system, so we know it's interstellar. Uh, a, initially, it was thought to be a rapidly moving uh, faint light, and they, they, they thought well, it's probably a comet or an asteroid. But based on its orbit, the astronomers realised that it must have come from interstellar space. Uh, multiple telescopes focused on the object for three nights to determine what it was before it moved out of sight at 85,700 miles an hour. Uh, what we found, this is a quote right here, what we found was a rapidly rotating object, at least the size of a football field, that changed in brightness quite dramatically. Uh, the long and rocky cigar-shaped object has a burnt dark reddish hue due to millions of years of radiation from cosmic rays. This hue is similar to that of objects found in the Cooper, Cooper, uh, Cooper. How do you spell it? K U I P E R, the Cooper Belt. K U I P E R. Yeah. I'd say like um Kuiper or yeah yeah Kuiper or Cooper. Cooper, yeah. Uh, in the outer part of our solar system, but its orbit and <clears> shape firmly place it in the category of interstellar origin. It most likely has a high metal content and spins on its own axis every seven point three hours. It's ten times as long as it is wide, so cigar shaped. And varies in brightness because it's got a convoluted shape and it's spinning so often. They gave it a nice uh, Hawaiian name, Umuamua, which, um, because it was discovered by a Hawaiian <coughs> telescope, the uh, name means uh, a messenger that reaches out from the distant past. How nice is that? That's very nice. Yeah. That's very nice, actually. Have you, you know, speaking of Hawaiian terminology, mm-hmm. you know what the, uh, I think it's a very specific ritual of forgiveness is, and it's referred to as ho'oponopono. Oh, really? It's, rather, it's something rather satisfying. There is something quite satisfying. Ho'oponopono, yeah. yeah. So it's a ritualistic uh, variation of um, forgiving somebody who has wronged you. And it's a very satisfying noise. Yeah, it is, it is. Got those lovely Hawaiians. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of little quick ones here. Uh, more than 40,000 Americans have taken out insurance against being abducted by aliens. 
that exists. I know, right? I mean, how do you fill out that form? Insurance. <laughs> every, every single dealing I've had with insurance has been an absolute pain in the ass. How the fuck do you quantify being abducted by aliens? How do, <laughs> how do you prove it to the auditor? And this guy turns around and goes, so I understand you were abducted by aliens. Yes, sir, I was. Um, prove it. <laughs> so I tell you what, if you can, you'd be worth a hell of a lot more than the insurance payout you're about to get. It's not fucking Billy Connolly, the man who sued God. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just... <laughs> Uh, over the past 40 years, there's been a daily average of six reported UFO sightings. These most often occur on Fridays in the West during drinking hours. You don't fucking say. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not blowing anybody's mind. <laughs> and yeah, I, I thought while we were here as well, just because we all love a bit of history, or we certainly do anyway, and we did drunk history, which focuses on American history, I thought I'd put together a quick few fun facts of American history mm. that you may not have heard of before. Uh, what we got here, yeah. At US President Andrew Jackson's funeral in 1845, his pet parrot had to be removed because it was swearing loudly. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> bastard. You did come. Never fuck me. <laughs> uh, in 1772, uh, sorry, in 1722, the readers of The Current, a paper published in Boston, were captivated by letters sent in by a widow with a keen wit and a gift for satire. Mrs. Silence Duguid. In her letters, Mrs. Duguid poked fun at such illustrious institutions as Harvard, therefore winning the hearts of many. For months, no one knew the identity of Mrs. Duguid. Uh, turns out, she was a 16-year-old Benjamin Franklin who worked oh, wow. as an apprentice in his brother's print shop. <laughs> and he was sending in these fake, fake letters. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> this, is, this is really, really good advice. Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln, was coincidentally either <laughs> present or nearby when three presidential assassinations occurred. He wasn't present at his father's assassination. Uh, he was at the White House and rushed to be with his parents at the time of that. Uh, the president was moved to the Peterson House after the shooting, where Robert attended his father's deathbed. At President James A. Garfield's invitation, Lincoln was at the 6th Street train station in Washington, D.C., when the president was shot by Charles J. Guiteau on July 2nd, 1881, was an eyewitness to the event. Uh, Lincoln was serving as Garfield's Secretary of War <laughs> at the time. At President William McKinley's invitation, Lincoln was at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, where the president was shot by Lillian, <laughs> um, the Eastern European name, Kazogitz, Kazogitz, on September the 6th, 1901. Although he was not an eyewitness to the event, he was just outside the building where the shooting occurred. Lincoln himself recognised these coincidences. He is said to have refused a later presidential invitation with the comment, no, I'm not going, and they better not ask me, because there is a certain fatality about presidential functions when I am present. Damn. Yeah. Or did he do it? <laughs> Ancient conspiracies. That should be our podcast, really. We get a way bigger audience. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, on September the 25th, 1820, in Salem, New Jersey, they held a trial against tomatoes, or tomatoes, I presume, if you're in New Jersey. Uh, the general populace believed that tomatoes were poisonous, so a man called Robert Johnson stepped in to prove them wrong. To do so, he bravely stood before a crowd at the courthouse and consumed a whole basket of tomatoes. Not dying after consumption, the trial was promptly dismissed. <laughs> so the, they were prosecuting tomatoes for being poisonous. Yeah, people used to believe tomatoes were poisonous. Well, I, knew, I knew that, but to have a trial, yeah, what are we going to do? Lock them all up? Yeah. Well, you know, um, well, my, um, as you know... Without, obviously, without giving any names, I was uh, up until last year involved in a relationship with a um, 
psychopathic American lady. Mm -hmm. And uh, out of the many things that she asserted were poisonous and lethal to her health and the health of the general population were all nightshades, which is inclusive of tomatoes. Right. As I said, she is completely insane. So, but there are people... People believe there was it was widespread at some point. Yeah. People, people believed that specifically tomatoes, but also nitrates in general, were you know, you eat them, you're dead. I have seen a theory on this going back to Andy's boring medieval history. Uh, in medieval England, the theory goes that you often, if you're if you weren't a person of wealth, you'd be eating your food off of lead trenches, so lead plates. And the theory goes that if you ate a tomato off a lead plate. The acid in the tomato uh, absorbs the lead. <clears throat> and so if you eat tomatoes off a lead plate, you end up with lead poisoning. That's the theory I've read on the, the medieval, See, English there, medieval version. There, there's, there's something of, you know, maybe a more rational kernel of truth, mm. you know, poisonous. That's the, uh, yeah, that's that's the uh, the speculation. And uh, last one here, my absolute favourite. The longest ever US presidential inauguration speech belongs to William Henry Harrison. The day of the inauguration <coughs> was overcast with cold wind and a noon temperature estimated to be 9.2 degrees centigrade. But the president-elect chose not to wear an overcoat, hat or gloves for the ceremony. Harrison's speech consisted of 8,445 words. Weeks after inauguration, Harrison caught a cold that eventually turned into pneumonia. Harrison died on April the 4th, making his presidency the shortest in American history. God damn. The speculation was because he did such a long speech in the cold, he eventually <laughs> got pneumonia funny. and died. And uh, yeah, he had a, a presidential run of 31 days. Holy shit. I've, I've, got, a, uh, I've got a quick one if I may. Yeah, go on. Um, Jesse Pomeroy, um, Massachusetts lad, at the age of 14, I think he was the youngest person just in the new in the in the Western world or anyway, he was the youngest person to be given a whole life order by a court of law. He was sentenced to life in prison at 14. I think he was the youngest person who ever in a civilized court of law to be locked up until his dying day at the age of 14 years old. That is interesting. Because um he was a complete psychopath. Mm. He was, a, he was a murderer and he used to violently attack loads of other children. And I think, yeah, prior to that, that would, yeah, they, they were originally going to hang him. But yeah, 14 years old, it was like, you are never, ever getting out of prison. I mean, that, I, don't, I don't think that's ever even happened in the UK. I know you had sort of um, impromptu courts for ridiculous things like, you know, uh, witchcraft trials and other things. But in, in, in terms of an actual criminal court, mm. somebody that young, it's like, yeah, you're, you're never getting out of prison. That is very he was, I mean, he was extraordinarily dangerous, but he was 14. It's fucking mad, isn't it? And yeah, that was that was in the US of A. Mm. Uh, that brings us to the uh, end of our podcast <laughs> here. Uh, quick chat about Patreon, actually. Oh, yes. Because Patreon has been going up and down as my... Oh, is it still causing... As my good old dad would say, like a horse draws. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been going up and down all over the place and also occasionally still deleting our podcast. I checked it earlier today. I check it every day at the moment. Checked it earlier today. Uh, the free podcast episode 22 is still up, but free podcast episode 21 has disappeared. Oh, that's fantastic. So I'm going to have to re-upload it, which means if you look through the sequencing, we go episode 20, episode 22, episode 21. So thank you very much for that, Patreon. We love you to death, and you make a, you're a brilliant platform in all respects, but would you please stop eating our podcast? It'd be, it would be nice. Again, that favor. if you go to check our podcast and episodes are missing or things are out of sequence or whatever, please, please be aware that that's Patreon's fault and not ours. We do have a general level of competency here on this podcast. Uh, we're hoping they get their shit in order. Otherwise, 
I guess it's just server issues on their end. But yeah, sometimes their episodes just disappear. And when we go to upload them, it then means things are out of sequence as well. Uh, you will get all your episodes. And the weird thing is, it's only ever deleted free podcasts, which is good, really, because anybody actually paying for our content hasn't been ripped at any point. Mm. That's the worst The worst thing we could possibly imagine. Absolutely. Is yeah. if you paid your money and you don't get what you've asked for, then that would be horrendous. So there is some uh, help in that. But yeah, if you're looking through our episodes and going, well, hang on a minute, the new one should be up by now and it's not, or you're looking back and something's gone out of order, basically that's what's happened. Patreon's eaten it. And I've had to or like do them out of sequence because it lists everything chronologically. So quick little word on that. Bastards. Uh, and as usual, we're about to go into our premium podcast. So if you would like more of our content, our Patreon page is there. It'll be going up and down, but it'll fucking do it. <laughs> There's tons and tons of content. This one, we're doing premium stuff for a while. We do it every single week. Uh, it's basically more of the same. We do more reviews. This week, I'm going to do uh, Artemis Fowl. Mm. Um, Liam's got some stuff queued up. We do So Bad It's Good. We do Would You Please Just Stop. There's loads of segments and games we play and things like that. So if you like our stuff, if you like who we are, and if you'd like to hear more of Floki uh, sitting there doing nothing and sleeping, <laughs> then please do consider... Uh, He's a lovely guy. Yeah. Uh, anything to add, mate? No, just like, really, really appreciate you guys tuning in. We hope you got some good recommendations out of this. And, you know, we just hope you enjoy listening to us three British twats waffling on and on and on. And, uh, yeah, stay safe. Hope none of you have caught COVID, obviously. <laughs> British twats and an Australian dragon. And an Australian dragon, yeah. Oh, man, we're a trio now. We can go anywhere. That's what I'm going to add into the roster. <laughs> Featuring two cynical Brits and one pissed off dragon. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm sold. That's fantastic. <laughs> no, cheers, guys. As always, thank you very much. Yeah, I hope to see you in the premium. Five bucks a month. We do an t- absolute ton of content. Way more than most podcasts do for five bucks a month, I'd like to point out. So please do consider us giving us a go. Uh, if not, we'll see you in the free one next week. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>